1 Samuel chapter 1, and I'm going to read a couple of verses that we did not read. As you notice, the chapter goes on at some length, and there are about 28 verses in this chapter. So let me read down from the end of the chapter, uh, the last two verses, verse number 27 and verse number 28, and then we'll have a word of prayer. Now, Hannah is the speaker here, and she says to Eli, For this child I prayed, and the Lord hath given me my petition, which I asked of him. Therefore also have I lent him to the Lord, as long as he liveth, he shall be lent to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. So with that reading in mind, let's bow our heads. We'll have a word of prayer and look at the message for today. Heavenly Father, again, we are grateful for the loving kindness that you have shown to us this past week. Uh, Lord, we do look around and realize that some folks weren't able to make it today, and we don't always know all the, the details of that, but we do know folks have many burdens. Perhaps some are traveling. We pray you'll watch over them, give them safety in their journey, and return them to us. We also pray, Father, for any who may not be feeling well today, and some names have been mentioned, and we also know on Wednesday evening we talked about a number of different requests people not feeling well, so somehow it seems that a bit of this uh, cold and flu and this type of stuff, whatever, uh, is making the rounds. We pray you'll just encourage folks that have labored with this and give them uh, recovery from it and restore them to us. Meanwhile, Lord, we're so grateful for each person who, who did find it possible to be here today. And we're just praying, Father, on your blessing on this service. Father, we know we really can't accomplish anything of any lasting value or spiritual good apart from the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So we covet that. We pray for that. We pray that the blessed Spirit would come and take the Word of God, illuminate our hearts, give me also liberty and freedom as I speak, bring to mind those things that uh, you have given that I need to say, and anything that uh, is not of you, I pray that will be forgotten. And Lord, as always, we're grateful for the fact that you know us as individuals. You know right where we are. You know how to take things that have been prepared today, perhaps along one line of thinking, and use them exactly as the individual may need. And so we trust you for this. We also pray, Father, for any that are meeting uh, in any of the rooms in the back. We do know of the nursery, junior church, whatever's going on back there. We pray you'll bless those groups. And may each person who came to Berean Bible Fellowship today uh, sense your presence and know that it was good to be in the house of the Lord. We thank you for these things now and pray these things in Jesus' holy and wonderful name. Amen. Well, as was mentioned earlier, we've been looking forward to having a baby dedication service. I always look forward to these. I think they're wonderful occasions for a church. And I think they have church-wide significance because they remind us of a number of different things. And so similar to what I've tried to do with communion, I'd sort of like to take a Sunday off from the regular series that we're working on so that uh, the baby dedication emphasis doesn't just become an afterthought. And we take a few moments in our message this morning to bring a special message one that I've entitled this morning, A Home to Admire. And I trust the emphasis on the home will be of broad-based application, not just to parents, but there are always aspiring parents and uh, ones that don't know that they're aspiring to be parents, but young people. And of course, many of you are grandparents and some of you are great-grandparents. And I think it's always wonderful to be reminded of the great ministry that we can have with children and always as a church, we should be burdened for children. Uh, there are a couple of caveats that I would like to just mention at the very outset of this. First of all, you talk about baby dedication, and I think it's important for us to realize that we certainly have a great deal of biblical precedent in this respect. However, we don't exactly have a written command that we have to do this. 
But as I say, a great deal of biblical precedent and example leads us to the belief, to the belief that this is a worthy practice for us to engage in. In fact, one of those precedents, one of those examples, a prime one, is the one that I've chosen to speak from this morning. So if you look at the verses that I read, you have an interesting phrase that's used here when Hannah is talking to Eli, and she talks about this in verse 28. Therefore I have lent him, so I'm just thinking in your mind, just underscore the word lent. Therefore have I lent him to the Lord, as long as he liveth, he shall be lent, and there it occurs again. It might interest you to know that one English translation of this is dedicate. And so we certainly have a prime example of that here. And if we read it that way, think about how that would sort of put the passage in the light of what we're doing today. Um, Therefore have I dedicated to him, him to the Lord, as long as he liveth, he shall be dedicated to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. The other thing I think we have to keep in mind whenever we talk about baby dedication is, is that while we focus on children, while we know that typically this happens when we have young children, as was the case of Samuel, and as will certainly be the case with the Ray children uh, this morning, uh, in many ways, the emphasis of a baby dedication service is as much on the parents and secondarily with the church as it is with the children themselves, because obviously there's a goal, there's a design that we have in this, We want these children to turn out well. We want these children to turn out to be servants of the Lord, whether it's full-time Christian service or it's just being full-time Christians. We want them to turn out that way. And, you know, for them to get there, we have to be honest and we have to have the kind of home and the kind of church atmosphere that we can really ask God to bless, not that God can't work outside of those means, not that there are not many examples of people who have not had that type of support and yet have found the Lord later in life or something else and have grown up to be servants of the Lord. But all things being equal, when we do have those things, then we know we need to do our part. It's important that we're honest in that. We don't just ask God to do our work for us, so to speak. I guess that would maybe be a way to put it. So it happens to be as much about parents and a church family as it does in many respects about the children themselves because we're praying for a desired end and uh, asking God to accomplish that and wanting to do our part to see that, that he can bless our efforts, even though we know our efforts are nothing apart from him. So we talk about the home this morning, and as I said earlier, I think an emphasis on the home is always a good emphasis to have. Uh, I would suspect you know this. I'm sure you heard a lot about this when Pastor Palmer was your pastor, Many of you, I'm sure, would realize that the home was sort of uniquely an emphasis and burden um, that he had. And, of course, in those years that he wasn't pastoring, he had the victorious family ministry, and they would go to churches, and this would be their theme. So I'm sure you've heard much about this, but, as I say, the the emphasis is always appropriate for us to have. Um, The home that produced Samuel, it was no accident. It was a home to admire, So we're going to take a few moments to talk about that and uh, see if we can't learn some things and be encouraged by some things in this home that we can sort of admire and maybe see that we need to have in our own home someday or do our best to maintain those things in the home that we have now or in the opportunities that we have with younger children. I want to talk first about Elkanah. It's kind of interesting that we might sort of be expecting to talk first about the man of the home, 
and that's exactly what happens. In the very first verse, we're introduced to the person who is the father, who is the husband, who is the man, so to speak, in the home. He's a man by the name of Elkanah. And I'll bet a while ago when Brother Lee announced that we would read this responsively, you were glad he said that since he got stuck with the verse that gave all those long names. And uh, we got past that and the worst was over, wasn't it? But he got stuck with that. So we won't go over all that ground again. But simply that he's introduced to us immediately in verse number one and his name is Elkanah. Now, having said this, though, and having described this as a home to be admired, there is something I need to say right at the outset. And that is, we have to deal with this situation that is introduced to us right off the bat in the very next verse with the fact that this was a home that had two women in it. Because it says in verse number two, and he had two wives, the name of the one was Hannah, the name of the other, Penina, and Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. I'd like to point out to you that the Bible is doing something here, and for, in fact, there are two examples of it in this chapter, where the Bible is true to the record. The Bible never makes any attempt to gloss over the shortcomings and the failings of God's servants, even people that God wants to hold up before us as an example. Nevertheless, God is always honest. The Bible record is always honest. But the Bible has a way of introducing that to us at the outset and dealing with it so that we've confronted it. We know it's there. No one's making any attempt to pull anything under the carpet or hide anything under the rug. But it's dealt with, it's out of the way, and then we go on to concentrate on the things that God really wants to hold up before us. So what can we say about this? Well, I guess what we have to say is, is that we do encounter this as being practiced from time to time in the Old Testament we know that it's really not the, the ultimate plan of God in marriage. It's really a departure from the pattern that we see introduced in the Garden of Eden. Did you ever stop to think about the fact that there weren't two for Adam to have? And so the pattern that we see in the very beginning is one man, one woman for life is what constitutes marriage, and marriage is a covenant between those two people. So it's a departure from that. Uh, you think about that phrase in the book of Acts and the times of this ignorance God winked at, so there were many things. But yet at the same point, even though this is a departure really from what God was looking for, his perfect will, uh, it did go on. But the weight of the example is that in the cases that we are given to look at in Scripture, you usually see that it doesn't work out well. And you know what, folks, anytime we depart from the perfect will of God, we're usually on a path that doesn't work out well. We either get second best or we get chastisement. In this particular case, um, it's, sort of, it's sort of predictable what happens here. And taking you back without taking a lot of time to this, you know, I, what is the first example is way early in the book of Genesis, but we aren't given too many details about Lamech. But you come to Abraham. Now, Abraham, of course, his wife was Sarai. That was her name in the beginning. And then you remember she couldn't have children, and so she decided to offer Abraham her servant as a surrogate wife, so to speak, as, as a kind of a secondary wife. How'd that work out? Not real well, right? Because a child was born, born to the servant wife, and it created friction in the home. Didn't work out too well, did it? Doesn't usually. Then you get a little bit later in the book of Genesis, and you come to chapter 30, and you have Jacob, and he is certainly one of God's chosen servants. And, and not necessarily that Jacob intended to, to, to have two wives, but, you know, he had a wily father-in-law. Yeah. 
And the father-in-law had two to take care of, and so you know how that story went, and Jacob ended up with Leah and Rachel. How'd that work out? No, there's problems there. How'd it work out here? Not so well. I mean, we've, we've, we, we, we hardly get down into this chapter, then we find out that Panina was kind of a pain. Uh, she had children. Everything worked out in the normal course of events with her. But Hannah, who had no children... What did Penina do? Poke at her. Kept throwing that up in her face. It's very possible, folks, that the whole reason that this came about was the fact that Hannah was, uh, we can't prove this, but it's, it's very possible that the whole reason that this, this situation came to pass was that Elkanah's wife was Hannah, and when they could have no children, he decided to take a second wife. And so you can kind of see her now, with, if that's the case, with the air of superiority, but nevertheless, how small can you be to take something that's so sensitive and, and so deeply burdensome to the heart of someone and then constantly go about poking them with that very thing? I think that's about as small as you can get. So it doesn't work out so well. There's the predictable rivalry. There's the predictable friction. In fact, when we get down to verse number six, is it? It says in the third word there, and her adversary... Uh, that sounds strong to us. Probably the sense there of adversary is rival. She be, saw herself as the rival because they couldn't always both have equal attention from Elkanah. And so it didn't work out so well. So we're going to put that aside now and start to talk about the things that, that without taking up the whole story and all the time. But you have to really do that if you're going to hold this up as a home to be admired because that's the one ding. No matter what you say about it, it's a, it's a ding. It's an imperfection in the story. And it's not part of that which God is wanting us to admire. So, all right, we have that over and we have that done with. What are we going to find in Elkanah to marry? Just this, that I think when you look at him, you can't come away without seeing a picture here of a godly leader. I'll give you some examples. In worship, it's obvious that he is a man, a godly leader. He is a man who leads his family in worship and ensures its practice. Notice verse number three, the word yearly is used. And this man went up out of his city, which was Ramah, yearly to worship and to sacrifice unto the Lord of hosts in Shiloh, because that's where the house of the Lord was at this time. And you come down to verse number seven and you read it again, and there is another mention, but I'm just going to do it this second time. Verse seven says, and as he did so year by year. And so you get the impression that that this was not a hit-and-miss thing. It was consistent worship. It was also worship in which he involved his family because we know that uh, Penina had children, and they all went up as a family. And I think that that's a very important thing for us to call to attention, that it's not only consistent. There was religious practice that they went up to the place that the house of the Lord was consistently to follow the commandments of Jehovah and to worship him there. So... You know, we look at various things today, and I think one of the things that you might say is, is that for us today, what would be the way you would accomplish that? It would be consistent attendance at the house of the Lord. And I'm certainly not going to put a stumbling block before people here and name you what number that is, but it's, it should be more than Christmas and more than Easter. And so it was consistent in, in, uh, in this home what was going on. And as I say, you don't just have a situation here where uh, you kind of get the impression that maybe it was a little bit this way with Job. When you, when you read, even though Job is held up before us as a godly example, when you read that first chapter, 
you get the impression that his children were off and they were feasting all the time and partying is kind of, you know, the impression you get from this. And then he was the one that was always praying for them and, 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 and careful. He was very careful. And in fact, in the story, Mrs. Job, she doesn't appear in a very good light. And the only situation or light in which we see the kids is kind of more in their feasting and partying. So it's almost as if Job is in the role he needs to be in, but somehow he's not quite been able to reach out and draw his family into this. And so this is a really important thing for a man to acknowledge that responsibility and to be a leader. I also want to point out, I think you see him as a godly, as a godly leader in his marriage because he clearly loves and consoles his wife. Now, like I said once before, we don't really have that many details about Penina. But we certainly have the story that's given to us in verses 6, 7, and 8 concerning uh, the, the attention that, that uh, Elkanah gave to his wife Hannah, particularly in her trial I'm thinking about here, how he was devoted to her, how he loved her, how he consoled her, how he supported her in this. Because it says in verse 6, and her adversary also provoked her sore. So this is kind of the second example that I said about this. All right, so we read about the fact that Elkanah had two wives, and you get that out of the way, and then it starts talking about how Elkanah is an example to us. But then you hear about Penina, and then you hear about the negatives concerning her, and then the story goes off and leaves Penina behind. In fact, I want to tell you something, folks. As far as everything else is concerned in the Bible, when we read the last thing that we read in this chapter about Penina, she walks off the pages of Scripture and no, nothing else is known about her at all. But it's not that way with Hannah. Because we not only go on to have those things that are revealed to us in 1 Samuel 1 and following, chapter 2, chapter 3, about her role uh, in this home to be admired, but really the language of her... Uh, song of praise to God that we have in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Much of that is adopted. It's the thoughts behind what's called in the New Testament Mary's Magnificat. And if you read in Luke chapter 1 there about that, you'll see where Mary pours out her praise to God, and she's using many of these thoughts. And so here's my point. Penina you don't hear anything more about. But Hannah lives on. And this is kind of the way of Scripture. Deal with the problem first, get it out of the way, then let's go on to talk about the godly example or whatever is going on in the story. Well, this is a trial. So verse 7, he did so year by year, and when she went up to the house of the Lord, she provoked her, therefore she wept. I mean, it really got to her. And so in verse 8, then it says, her, Elkanah, her husband, uh, why weepest thou, and why eatest thou not, and why is thy heart grieved? Am I not better to thee than ten sons? Well, you might think that he's being a rather bold to make a statement like that. Some of the women might also think, well, he's just a man and doesn't know exactly how women feel. I think I would tend to look at it this way. I think he understands how she feels, and I think he's mostly just honestly portraying himself as someone that he knew, loved, and took care of her. But in this particular instance, as she's going through this trial, right there at the worship time, that they go up to worship. It's like Penina chooses the absolute worst time to poke her about this because her children are front and center there and what they're doing with this family worship. And he's right there for her. And man, I think that's a very important thing. 
Um, we may be put together differently emotionally and in other ways from our wives, but when they are going through trials, and, and the reverse is also true, uh, that's what we're there for each other for. And I see him in that role. I see him fulfilling that not only in uh, he's, a, he's, he's a leader in his marriage, not only by showing that consolation and love in her trial, but later in the chapter we see him supporting her in this task of raising Samuel. We get down to the verses later. I think you're probably familiar with this, but verse 21 says it's time to go up for the yearly uh, worship. Hannah says, I'm not going. I'm going to stay here and stay right with this child until it's time to wean him, and then I'll go up, and then we'll be presenting him to the Lord exactly as uh, we've covenanted, covenanted together to do. And he says, you do that. He supports her. He understands the work that's involved. He understands her burden. He understands that she wants to do the, the dead level best she can so that when Samuel is ready to go and be presented to the Lord, this would be about three years old uh, in, Bible, in the Bible way of things. A weaning child would be somewhere around three that they would take him up to the house of the Lord and that would be it. She would be leaving him there then to dedicate his life in service to God. And her husband is right there supporting her in that. I had to laugh. I read a story recently and it was about these several fellas, three in fact, who were in the waiting room at the hospital. Their wives were back in the back uh, to deliver children. And so it's tense, you know, and these guys are looking at each other and they're trying to look at magazines and all this, but they're nervous. They're, they're waiting for the nurse to come and tell them, you know, what's going on and what's happened. So after a little while, uh, the nurse comes out and she looks for a particular man and she sees him. She walks over and she says, sir, congratulations, you are the proud father of twins. And he said, wow. He said, that is a coincidence. He said, I play for the Minnesota Twins. A little more time went by, the nurse went back. This time another nurse comes out, different nurse, and she looks for the man she's looking for. And she goes up to him and she said, Sir, she said, congratulations. She said, you are the proud father of triplets. And the man said, that's just amazing. He said, I work for the 3M company. About this time, the other guy who was sitting on his chair just kind of slithered off the chair and lay down on the floor. The other people in the room thought he was ill, and they said, Sir, are you okay? He said, Yes, I'm fine, but he said, You see, I work for 7-Up. <laughs> well, it's a lot of work, isn't it? It's a lot of work. And uh, I think the Lord knew what our limit was, and we called it a halt at three, and I don't know God's business for other people. But... Uh, our quiver was full then. <laughs> so you, you kind of have to figure that out. I'm not telling you what to do, but I'm just saying it's a lot of work. And I do think if we decide to have a larger family, then we have to be doubly committed because you can't just sort of decide that you're going to spend less time with the other children because now you have more and more uh, responsibilities. But, you know, all of this matches up, and I wish we had more time, but all of this really matches up when we see this in Elkanah, this godly leader of worship in his home. It, it really just matches up with what we find in the New Testament uh, in Ephesians 5 and 6, the portrayal of the husband, the man in the home. Husbands, love your wives. And then in chapter 6, verse 4, ye fathers, uh, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. 
Well, let's talk about Hannah. She's the woman in the home, and you know what? That's the next thing we read about. She comes right up, and that's exactly how this is meant to unfold. If Hannah is the picture of a godly leader, I think that in, I mean, sorry, Elkanah, I think in Hannah you have the picture of a godly example. She's an example both to her husband and to her child who is to come. Where do we see this? Well, we see it, first of all, in her devotion to the Lord. You see that in her prayer life. This is just one insight, but it certainly gives a picture. You come away from this with a very distinct impression of what kind of home this was, what kind of man this was, and what kind of woman this was. And I would have to say, as I think about her prayer and the insights that we can gain into her as a praying woman, I would have to say that this is the kind of praying mother that every home needs. What do we see? I see that her prayer is fervent. Look at chapter 1, verse 10, where it says she was in bitterness of soul and prayed unto the Lord and wept sore. Obviously, this prayer is in earnest. It's fervent. Verse number 13 sort of doubles down on that. Now, Hannah, she spoke in her heart. Only her lips moved. So this was a prayer from her heart. Verse number 15. uh, Again, you have this emphasis that Hannah said, To Eli, no, my Lord, I am a woman with a sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but have poured out my soul. Well, that that is what prayer is. And obviously, she's very fervent. She's unselfish in her prayer. Yes, she wants a child. But it's not one of those deals that the book of James warns us about, where James says, you have not because you ask not. And then he goes on to say, you ask it. And have not because ye ask amiss that ye may consume it upon your lusts. Well, Hannah doesn't just want the child so that she can regain her status or gloat back to Penina. That's not the kind of prayer this is. No, she wants a child and is dead, genuine, and honest. And she said, Lord, I understand what this means. And if you will be so good as to grant a, a, a child, and then she indicates that she plans to dedicate him to the Lord. Her prayer is specific. Verse 11, she wants a son. Her prayer is blessed. Even Eli, who wasn't always the sharpest, notice verse 17, then Eli answered and said, go in peace and the Lord grant thee thy petition that thou hast asked of him. And then look at this. The very next verse tells us that she went home and her countenance was no more sad. I love that because that's what prayer should do for us. And Unfortunately, sometimes we're not always victorious, are we, in taking our burden to the Lord and leaving it there? Sometimes we take our burden to the Lord and don't leave it there. But Eli steps in and pronounces a word of blessing, and she goes away assured that God is going to hear her prayer. I think we see this um, picture of her as a godly example, not only in her prayer life, but we see it next in her dedication to her children. And I say plural because, you know, later it turned out that way. Look at chapter 1, verse 22. Um, Certainly we see there, But Hannah went not up, for she uh, said unto her husband, I will not go up until the child be weaned, and then I will bring him that he may appear before the Lord and there abide forever. So she's completely dedicated to Samuel uh, in his infancy and at at toddler age. And uh, then we get down in verse number 19 of chapter 2. Look over there. Moreover, his mother made him a little coat. And this shows that he was always on her heart, even uh, when she had brought him to the, to the house of the Lord, yet she was always thinking about him, and she made that little coat so that they could take it up when they went for the, for the yearly sacrifice. 
Um, over in chapter 2, verse 22, it tells us that more came later. God continued uh, to bless her in this respect. And chapter 2, verse 22 says, Now Eli was old. And I think that the, the Bible um, is meaning to give a contrast to Eli, who, who, who did not show a great deal of care and dedication for his sons. And his sons were wayward, and they didn't follow his ways. And so the picture is one of a contrast here with what we see of Hannah. Now Eli was old and heard all that his sons did unto Israel and how he lay with women that assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation and so forth and so on. And it wasn't good. And there's a tremendous contrast here, I think, that the Bible is telling us. But verse 21, the verse before us, the Lord visited Hannah and she conceived and bare three sons and two daughters, and the child Samuel grew before the Lord. So that's the picture that we have of her. And again, I wish there was more we could say, or wish there was time for more that we could say. I do want to quickly tell you, though, um, I would challenge you. There's a very interesting thought. Certainly God chooses to sometimes work in other ways, but you would be, I think, amazed. I think any of us would be amazed if we were to really look into the subject of the godly mothers of what we would call, I guess, famous servants of the Lord. I'm trying to impress on you how important this really is. How, how, how many times over time God has significantly used the godly influence of a mother in raising up one of his special servants. I've mentioned this before. I'm just going to give you a couple of examples to remember, but there's Monica, the, the mother of Augustine of Hippo. And then, of course, we, if we know, and I go read the story if you don't know it, but Elizabeth, who was the mother of John Newton, who prevailed in prayer for him to be saved. You have, of course, Susanna Wesley. She's oftentimes known to us, uh, the mother of John and Charles Wesley. You have Elijah Spurgeon, and Spurgeon has a tremendous amount to say about the credit he gives to his mother for his, uh, his conversion and his life of ministry. I wanted to tell you quickly about one that you might not know and about a facet of the story that you might not know. I've mentioned several times recently, we know about Hudson Taylor. We know that Hudson Taylor was the founder of, ultimately the founder of the China Inland Mission, that he spent over 50 years in China. A lot of people might not know that during his teen years, when he was roughly 15, he went through a tremendous spiritual crisis. Now, his, his home was a Christian home. Both parents knew the Lord. Uh, they, were, they dedicated to him to the Lord before he was born. They, they made that determination that they wanted to dedicate this child to the Lord. Uh, they were God-fearing people. But... His father was actually the one who sort of encouraged him, maybe even you would say pressured him a little bit, when he got to be 15, to take a job in a bank. His father seemed to think that somehow this would give him a greater experience in life. Well, it certainly did that, because when he went to work in this bank, he, he got in with a different crowd than what he was used to being in with. And they weren't people who were sympathetic to spiritual things, and so uh, he was introduced to bad language, he was introduced to the whole idea that money and wealth and the pleasure that could come by having plenty of money were really the, the things to be sought for in life. It rubbed off, and soon he laid aside any prayer, any Bible reading. 
Fortunately, and I would say providentially, uh, poor eyesight caused him to have to give that job up, and he returned home a wreck, a, a very troubled teenager at the age of 17. Well, his father tried to talk to him, but you know sometimes fathers don't always do so well there, and I think his father was maybe a bit heavier and more rigorous in his, his way of approaching these things than Hudson Taylor's mother. Hudson's mother also spoke with him about these problems he was experiencing, but I think it wasn't too long before she, she realized that, you know what, uh, we've said what we can say. It's Prayer is the thing that needs to happen here. This is, this is what's going to work. You know, there's only so much you can say to some people, and then you realize that, you know what, I'm shut up to the resource of prayer, but it's a mighty, it's a mighty tool. And she began to pray. In fact, this, this is the story that on one occasion, she was away from home on a couple of days of a trip. That, and all of a sudden, at the place where she was, she just felt a tremendous burden, a compulsion from God. And she got away from the others, got to her room, closed the door, and labored in prayer for several hours until she actually got to the place where she felt, I'm done. God gave her the assurance that he was going to save her boy. Meanwhile, back at home, here's what's going on. Hudson's bored. He meanders into his father's library, hoping perhaps he'll find something of interest there. He looks at the books, and shortly his eye falls to a tract that was sitting there. It was called Poor Richard. And the title of it got his attention, but what got his attention even more was as he read this tract, Poor Richard, there was a phrase that was used in that tract, and the phrase was the finished work of Christ. It wasn't so much a particular verse as much as it was that phrase, the finished work of Christ. And the Spirit of God used that to open his eyes and cause him to realize, there it is. Christ and Christ alone is all I need. And he placed his trust in Christ as his personal Savior. Well, when his mother got home, he wanted to tell her. So he saw her as she was coming. He went out to tell her. He got a couple of sentences out of his mouth, didn't really get into the story. She stopped him, and she said, I know. She said, I know what it is that you want to tell me. You have given yourself to God. And then she explained about this prayer burden that had happened and how she prayed. Her prayers continued to follow Hudson Taylor. In fact, her prayers were a part of his mission work. In fact, I want to read you a couple of sentences that he wrote himself about her prayers and his eventual life's work. He says this, My beloved mother had come over to Liverpool to see me off. This was when he was leaving for China. Never shall I forget that day, nor how she went with me to, into the cabin that was to be my home for nearly six long months. With a mother's loving hand, she smoothed the little bed. She sat by my side and joined in the last hymn we should sing together before parting. We knelt down and prayed. The last mother's prayer I was to hear before leaving for China by never expecting to meet on earth again. That's quite substantial, isn't it? That's what he wrote in his own, in his own diary about this. 
Well, we don't need much time, but we want to quickly just say a word as we finish the message today about the children in the home. And as we read, children is accurate because there was first Samuel and then later God blessed with other children that he gave uh, to Hannah. But for Samuel, what picture do we get there? If we have in the man in the home the picture of a godly leader, if we have in the woman a picture of a godly example, then we have a picture of the children in the home. Again, now as I say, we've long since put Penina aside. We don't have any information there. But as to the picture of God's blessing here, Samuel is the picture of a dedicated servant. And I don't think I need to do a lot with that to bring that to your attention. In fact, I think rather than read several of the verses, you, you know the story of how Samuel is there. He's serving the Lord. Several verses in chapter 2 remind us that he's doing that. But then let's look at this. Let's just read the summary of it. You get to the end of chapter 3. And in verses 19 and 20, here's the summary that we're given of this. It says this, And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him. And it let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established to be a prophet of the Lord. So that's why I say it's a home to be admired, because what we see is in the man a godly leader, in the woman a godly example, in the children at least the ones that God means to emphasize for us, picture of dedicated service. And I said earlier, folks, we want to have a word of prayer, but as I said earlier, not all the children that God gives us will be in full-time Christian service, but we dedicate them and ourselves with the fervent hope and prayer that they will all be full-time Christians. And I can't emphasize to you just how important enough, how just how important this is, so I want to leave you with this to consider. These are actually statistics that are older, but in being older, I think all of us would agree that probably it's more so true today. But these statistics actually come from a story that uh, we know about from the life of Horatius Bonar, who was a 19th century Scottish preacher. Some of you may know the name. But he got interested in this very fact, and so he asked 253 of his friends at what ages they were converted. Listen to the answers. Under 20, 138. So that's more than half. Between 20 and 30, 85. Between 30 and 40, 22. Between 40 and 50, 4. Between 50 and 60, 3. Between 60 and 70, 1. Over 70, none, 0. So maybe it is time, even though the verse comes from a different context, what thou doest, do quickly. May the Lord impress on us the importance as a church family as an individual family and grandparents today, the Rays and the Wurtzes, and all of us, uh, prospective parents, how important this really is. Dear God, bless us, we pray. Thank you for the privilege and opportunity that's been given to us today to be a part of this. Lord, we realize there's, there's not necessarily any magic or power in any ceremony or anything of that nature that we would be 
we would do, but we know, Father, you're honored uh, in the burdens of our heart. And we just desire that you will hear our prayers and bless our children and we'll thank you for what you do now. Bless these next few moments. May they be special to us in Jesus' holy and wonderful name. Amen.